All right, we're going to begin the way we always begin. We're going to start with the kids. Kids, if I could have your attention, I'm going to tell you what the sermon's going to be about, what the passage is going to be about, okay? Um, kids, do you all know what the offering is? You all remember the offering? We pass around the plate, we take money. Okay, at Cornerstone, at our very, very first worship service, the first time we gathered uh, for worship, we're collecting the offering, and one of the parents handed their child a dollar, to put into the offering plate. Uh, For privacy's sake, let's call him William F. (laughs) That's uh, that's too obvious. Let's say uh, W. Fox. Uh, And the boy, this boy looked at his dollar, (laughs) looked at his dollar, and as the offering plate's coming by, he said, quote, I'm not paying taxes to the church. And he put his dollar in his pocket. And I'm pretty sure he made it home with that dollar. And that kid still owes the church one dollar. Be coming for that. Okay, so question, kids. Do you pay taxes to the church? This is, you know what? We really don't talk about money, kids, with y'all. But let's just do powwow. No bad answers. Just throw this stuff out. Do you pay taxes to the church? Kind of. (laughs) No. The answer is, it's good news. No, you actually do not pay taxes to the church. How about this? Um, Does Jesus care about money? Yes, he actually does. This is good. Oh, man, we've needed to do this for a little while. Okay, this is good. Uh, We're just, this is good. Pow wow. Uh, Yes, Jesus does care about money. Okay, how about this? Is money a good thing or a bad thing? It depends good. It's a good thing. Money is a good thing. That's good. Okay, how about this? Do you have to give money to the church? What'll happen if you don't give money to the church? Nothing. (laughs) Do you have to give money to the church? There's a better way to ask it. What will happen if you don't ever give any money to the church? Nothing. Okay, so here's the big question. Uh, well, how, well, we'll come to that. Uh, why then, if you don't have to give money to the church, why does anybody give money to the church? What do y'all think? To pay the pastor. To pay the pastor. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> A plus. Uh, <laughs> what else? Uh, yes, uh, we'll come back to that. Okay. Why, why, why would anyone give money to the church? To support the church. What what else was it? Noah, what'd you say? Pay for the bread. That's maybe the best way to just summon, to pay for the bread. And what do we mean by paying for the bread? Listen, how about this? When, uh, oh, no, no, wait, I want to ask you this first. What do you need more? What do you need more? Do you need Jesus more or money more? Jesus, do you need money? Yes, we need money. We need money. Got to buy that bread. We need money. And uh, we need Jesus. You need both, but which one do you need more? Jesus. Okay, and when do you remember the most? What day of the week do you remember most that you need Jesus? Sunday, right here. When we get together and we say, oh my goodness, how much do we need Jesus? That's why we give money 
to the church. That's what Noah means by got to pay for the bread. We've got to pay for this like spiritual thing of we've got to come together and we've got to remind each other. We've got to keep worshiping Jesus and remember how much he loves us. That he loves you so much that he lived for you. That he loves you so much that he died for you. That he loves you so much he gave up everything for you. Kids, you know how much your salvation cost you? Nothing. You know how much your salvation cost Jesus? Everything. And that's how much he loves you. And that's why we give to the church. We give to the church so we can tell each other about Jesus's love and so that we can go and tell others about Jesus's love. And we want to remember too uh, that we are a family and, and we've got to take, like, we're not just, we're not just spirits. Remember, we've talked about that too. Like, like you really do need to eat. You really do need clothing. You really do need like a roof over your head. And we're a family, and so we also give so that we can help each other have that stuff. We want to make sure our brothers and our sisters here in the church, in other churches, uh, people who don't have anything, that we can take care of each other. Uh, all the way until Jesus comes back or we go to heaven. We give, uh, we give because we love each other. And we love each other because Jesus loves us. That's what we're going to talk about today. We're ending our fall series in 1 Corinthians this morning. Uh, and from the beginning, Paul's been dealing with all these divisions uh, in the church that he planted in Corinth. One after another, super application-heavy letter. Past three weeks, we've been in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about Jesus' bodily resurrection and our bodily resurrection, which is like, it's the biggest thing. And then, but he keeps going, and he's going to end this letter that's all about division— and he's going to do it by asking for money. <laughs> and yeah, it's, and it is the end of the year, Q4, fiscal year. Um, and just, sorry, not sorry. We, but we, we pick a letter in the Bible and we just work through it. This just happens to be how Paul ended his letter. So, uh, and it's good to just pick a letter and go through it because it means you can't skip over the hard stuff or the uncomfortable stuff. Please stand for the reading of God's word. These are selections from 1 Corinthians 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as you may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all, let all that you do be done in love. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. So this gift that Paul's talking about for Jerusalem, Paul takes up this collection more than once, and he writes about it. 
He's going around to churches in the West. He's collecting money for the poor Christians in Jerusalem because Paul knows the Christians in Jerusalem. They're going through a terrible, terrible time uh, of uh, especially persecution that this new Christian faith has just divided everything. Jewish converts to Christianity who are in Jerusalem, they've now been ostracized by the Jewish community. They've lost family. They've lost friends. They've lost jobs. Some have been thrown in prison. Some have lost their lives. And there have been famines sweeping through Jerusalem. And so Paul is taking up a financial offering to help provide for those Christians who are in need in Jerusalem. And that just, that sounds reasonable enough, right? Did you know that Jesus talked more, he talked more often about money than he talked about faith and prayer combined? 11 out of Jesus's 40 parables, they were about money. I'm really bad at math, but that's like more than one-fourth, I think. Uh, maybe it's not. I don't know. <laughs> a, lot of our, a lot of our Old Testament stories are about or they involve money or inheritance. And it's because we've got a problem. What is our problem with money? which is pluralize that, problems. Just break it down really simply. One is fear. As in like, you get scared with your money because you think you don't have enough money. Or you know what it's like to not have money. You've actually been through seasons of life where there has not been enough money. Or you don't know what to do with your money, and so you're scared you're going to mishandle it. You, you, you know, you've mishandled it in the past, or you've seen family, or you've seen friends mishandle money, and, and there's been real trouble that comes with that. Fear, or it's pride. As in what you have, you've earned through your hard work, or you've inherited through a loved one's hard work, and it's yours and so really, no one should get to just come along, take it, or tell you what to do with it. So, with all our problems with money, is it really going to do any good for Paul to tell these Corinthians what to do with their money? To tell these Corinthians who are hurting themselves, who are divided, to put aside their money, to give it away, and he does it all in a space of two verses— like given the given the really really big need that is in Jerusalem for starving persecuted Christians and all the problems that healthy people have with money let alone these divided Corinthians this seems like a really small ask like when you go raise money people don't hey make a big ask this seems like a really small ask it seems like a really flippant command you put aside money i'm coming there is a 2 Corinthians letter, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul tells this same church again, the church in Corinth, he tells them again, again, set aside money for Christians in Jerusalem. And this is how he says it. I say this not as a command. As in he's saying, I am not commanding you to put aside something for the Christians in Jerusalem. And then in the next chapter, just a few verses later, he says it like this. He says, each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
And before we go all Old Testament, let's just acknowledge like, yes, side note, we can acknowledge that Israel in the Old Testament was commanded to tithe a certain percentage to the temple, for the priests, for the festivals, for all this ceremonial stuff, yes. But after Jesus' resurrection, there is no mention of the church commanding a tithe in the New Testament. And it's because the temple and the priesthood and those festivals, they're passing away, they're done. Now, as Paul says here, he says, as you prosper, what he means is now you give just as you can give, as you are able to give. But the commanding, the guilting, the shaming that each and every one of us has heard from all kinds of organizations, and yes, from the church, the pounding the church over and over and over, tithe, 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 it does not work. It just, not in the long run. And the numbers do not lie. Giving to the church has gone down as our country has become more and more affluent. So commanding generosity will not make the church more generous. It just won't. Uh, have y'all ever heard of the monkey trap? Uh, as it, like, hey, don't get caught in the monkey trap. Uh, it's a trap that both poachers and scientists uh, used to capture various monkeys around the world. Uh, the trap is super, super simple. You get a coconut, or you get a gourd, something that's hollow, some kind of, you get some kind of container and you cut a small hole in it, you, you uh, get a container, you tie a rope around it, you secure it somehow to the ground uh, and then you put a banana in it or, or you put a candy bar in it and you wait. And the monkey comes along and smells the treat and squeezes his empty hand into the opening and then grabs the treat. But now when the monkey grabs the treat, he's made a fist. And now the monkey cannot get his hand out of the monkey trap. And then the scientist or the poacher comes along, no rush. There's no surprise. They just leisurely walk up to the monkey who is freaking out, screaming, yelling, swatting, jumping, biting, but he is not letting go of the treat. All the, all the monkey has to do is let go. And he's free. But even with capture, even with death approaching, the monkey is trapped. And that's us, like to one degree or another, we're all trapped by our greed our love, our want, uh, this sense of our need of money, this thing that we are so enticed by. And once we get some, we don't want to let it go, even if we see that it is enslaving us, even if we see it's killing us, we can't let go. And the command to just give our money away, even to help others, that will not help us because the default mode of the human heart, as another pastor said, ever since the fall of mankind, it's individualistic. It is consumeristic. It is, I will craft my life the way I want to craft my life, and I will only include other people as much as it serves my purposes. 
Now here, Paul could be making it extra clear in 2 Corinthians, in that other letter where he's saying all this, I am not commanding, that he's not commanding them to be generous because they misunderstood him in this first letter here in, in chapter 16, but he actually does not command them to be generous here. Verse one, he says it like this. He says, now concerning the collection, as I directed the other churches, Galatia, so also you are to do. But that's like the word there too is he's giving them direction. It's not commanding. He's giving them direction and he's doing it really briefly. And then what he does for the rest of the closing of the letter, he reveals the why they're going to give. He gives them the reason, the power that is in them to be generous. Verse 14, it's right here. Verse 14 goes through all of this. He says, listen, let all that you do be done in love. He's explicit that it's the reason, why are you going to do this? Why does anyone do this? Because it's love. And then he puts that love explicitly on display. What, you get to the end of these letters, or sometimes it's at the beginning of these letters. We all, if you're, re, if you're a faithful Bible, you know, you love to read your Bible. We tend to skip over this personal stuff with all these names because it's so ran, it seems so random to us. Like this stuff, this stuff doesn't have anything to do with us, but it does. Here's stuff that we did not put in the bulletin, not because I thought it was random, but because didn't want to miss forest for trees, but these trees are really important. Verse 10, when Timothy comes, he says, put him at ease among you. Like, take care of him. I need him, and you need him. Verse 17, and I'm so happy to tell you that Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, who are such a blessing to me, they are headed back to you. Who are these guys? We know Timothy was Paul's disciple headed to Corinth to help serve. These other three are some of the local leadership in the Corinthian church that have been out helping Paul. They're coming back. Stephanus, that is a Greek name. This guy's Greek. Fortunatus, that's a Latin name. This guy's Roman. Timothy, we know he's half Jew, half Greek. Paul, all Jew. All, I mean, the most Jewish, as Jewish as it gets. So you got a Greek, a Roman, a half Jew, half Greek, and a Jew. It's like a bad bar joke. This leadership could not be more culturally, ethnically different. And they love each other. And they serve each other. And they serve together. Paul calls them and these former but he, he's talking about these guys and he's talking about, he's addressing the Corinthians, these former Greek pagans. Uh, he's calling them his brothers over and over. And, and we just read that like, oh yeah, yeah. He's calling them brothers. He's calling them family over and over and over. And he says at the end, he says, I long to come to you. And that's that like, I'll be home for Christmas kind of language. Like I am coming. Paul is asking Christians in Corinth steeped in their own mess and in their own divisions to give money for Christians in Jerusalem a thousand miles away to help a people that they, were, that they will never meet till heaven. But Paul, Paul knows these persecuted Christians in Jerusalem because he used to persecute them. This is Paul. He's a former child prodigy, rising pupil and star of the Pharisees. His zeal for the Jewish law is unmatched, but he misinterpreted the law and he believed that an individual was saved by works of the law, 
And then these Christians come along with their gospel of grace and this savior who fulfills the law for them. All of that, it threatens everything he has built his life on. It threatens everything he believes. So he is devoted to now tearing down Christianity and destroying the church. And then Jesus converts Paul. And Paul transitions from killing Christians to leading Christians, from terrorizing the church to building it up, from driving people away from the church to drawing all kinds of people to the church, from threatening people to curse Jesus to teaching people to confess Jesus is Lord. And y'all, we've said this before, but this is, the church is only, it's only so big, like especially at the beginning of the church. So you know that for the rest of Paul's life, whenever he's preaching, whenever he is fellowshipping, especially when he goes back to Jerusalem, he is going to see somebody whose wife, husband, daughter, son, mom, dad, sister, brother, he killed. You just, you just have to wonder, can you imagine what it would be like for Paul after he had become a Christian? He's out all day preaching, he's evangelizing, he's praying with people. And then in the quiet of the night, when it's finally calm, he remembers the voices. The voices of the families that he bound and he had dragged off to die. People he would now consider brothers and sisters. But they're gone now because he cast his vote against them and he had them executed. I mean, can you imagine the memory of that inside him every day. He wakes up every morning, every night. He tries to go to sleep. And Jesus and his grace is bigger than all of that. It covers over all of it. It heals it. It mends it. It mends those divides to make an enemy family. Paul is not just collecting money for strangers that they'll never meet a thousand miles away. He is asking former Greek pagans to send money to Jewish Christians a thousand miles away. Yes, but these are the same Jewish Christians who sent Paul a thousand miles away with the greatest treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ that their enemies, like these Corinthians, might become their family. Paul says, listen, let all that you do be done in love. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prissa, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers, that's just all the brothers and sisters send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And if you ever want to, when you go read first century historians writing about the church, they thought this stuff was crazy. Like a holy kiss, a what, huh, a holy kiss between Greeks and Jews, like between rich and poor, between masters and their slaves, between Coptics and Romans embracing each other and treating each other as equals, like friends, taking care of each other like your family. Like, it's crazy. And if you look around, this is Go ahead, you can look around. Uh, if you do look around, this is one of those beautiful gatherings where, I mean, just admit it, you, you naturally, like you're not finding yourselves gathering uh, to do life together because we hear, we're not all like each other. We're just not. And, and actually, we need to admit that more than we try to deny it sometimes of like, oh my goodness, this is what the gospel does. 
It unites a people that would otherwise be divided. It unites people that are already supposed to be united, but have division amongst them, and we're going to be united again. We're going to keep working to be united. So I just want to say, money is a good thing. And Jesus and his people are better. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Weight of Glory, I think this is an apt description. Uh, he says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Now, uh, Paul gets that you can't just command someone to love, just like you just can't command someone to be generous. So it begs the question, like, what is, what is fueling this love? Starts it right at the beginning. It says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also you are to do. Here it is. What's fueling this love? On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as you may prosper. That is in keeping with your income as you're able. Why have the offering first day of every week? Do you know the New Testament doesn't talk about the other days of the week? Ever? It, the New Testament does talk about the seventh day of the week, Saturday, because the Old Testament Jewish Sabbath. The New Testament talks about the first day of the week, Sunday talks about it eight times, which is a lot because it doesn't talk about the days of the week. It talks about the first day, Sunday, talks about the first day of the week so much because Sunday is what? Sunday is the day of Jesus's Easter, resurrection. Jesus died on the cross and he was raised from the dead on the first day of the week, Sunday. It's that first day of the week when the women come to the tomb and they find that it's empty and they run and they grab the disciples and they come back and they see that it's empty and Mary Magdalene hangs back and she is the first person to see and speak to and touch resurrected Jesus. And then later that same day, he appears to, do, to two disciples who are traveling to Emmaus. And then later that evening, he appears to the rest of his disciples, except for Thomas. And Thomas says, I won't believe it till I see it. And then a week later, on Sunday, he appears to his disciples and Thomas. So, resurrected Jesus sets this precedent by resurrecting on Sunday and then appearing to his disciples on Sunday, on the first day of the week. Sunday is now the appointed time for Christians to come together to meet with Jesus. And one Old Testament commentator He's pointed out, try to wrap your mind around that. This is so good. He's pointed out that you're really supposed to see Jesus' resurrection on the first day as an eighth day. I think I keep going in and out. I want to make sure you hear this. <laughs> you're supposed to see Jesus' resurrection on the first day as an eighth day of the week, as it were. As in, like, think about this. Jesus was crucified on Friday. Okay. Then there's Saturday. And Saturday is the Jewish Sabbath. It's the seventh day of the week. It is the end of the week. That's the end. Done. Jesus is in the tomb. Well, then Easter Sunday comes. It's an eighth day. It is a new day unlike any other. This, 
the so what for us is this cycle, this weekly cycle of seemingly never ending weeks, week after week of toil and hardship and suffering and death. Jesus' resurrection on the first day is a new day. A new day when death has been overcome. It is the ushering in of heaven itself, the new kingdom. It has come. And our church gathers on the first day to proclaim this reality that Jesus is victor over, in, over our enemies, over sin and over death. And he really reigns as king of kings right now. I mean, so right now, like what we're doing right now, no, this is not yet the full gathering of God's people. No, it is not yet the final eternal day of the Lord. No, but it is right now. It is already a participation of what is going on in heaven right now. And when you're worshiping, when we gather to show forth the death of Jesus on the cross and celebrate his resurrection from the dead, and we remember that he is exalted in heaven right now, having already overcome our sin and death, our condemnation, the devil, all forces of evil. And we remember that he is with us right now, even though we are still in the thick of our mess and in the thick of our suffering. The victory, it is one. And he is with us and he's gonna be with us all through it all uh, until he comes again and he consummates his victory and he takes us to glory. It is when you're worshiping like that, when you are, when you worship like that, then you are most mindful of how all your needs, they really are met in Jesus. How your earthly life, your heavenly glorified resurrected life, that is secure in Jesus already. It's then that you have the most objective view. It's then that we see with eyes of faith and we hear with ears of faith when, when you see reality most clearly of what you've been given. It's when you're worshiping God that you are most aware of your debt to him, a debt that you can never pay, a debt that has been paid by him for you, it's that thing, what we told the kids, that your salvation cost Jesus everything and it cost you nothing. And because it cost you nothing and it cost him everything, it cost you everything. All, all, your all your love is owed to him. It's when you're worshiping God that you're most aware of his love for you that spurs, that fuels your love for him and for those who belong to him, those who need him, those who need you. It's those around you. There's this guy, Joshua Bell. He's one of the world's greatest violinists. He is a former child prodigy, soloist. He's a recitalist today. He's a chamber musician. He's a conductor, and he's currently the music director of the Academy of St. Martin in the Fields. So back in 2007, they did a social experiment, and they stuck Joshua Bell. You can go see this on the YouTube. They stuck Joshua Bell in a DC metro subway in the early morning rush hour. It's like when everyone is hurrying and they're on their way to work and they disguised him <laughs> just by putting a baseball cap on him. But they disguised him, they dress him down and they stick him next to a trash can. And he played six Bach pieces. Some of the most intricate music that has ever been written. And he played them on a Stradivarius that is worth three and a half million dollars. It was worth three and a half million in 2007. Who knows how much it's worth now? Uh, he played for 45 minutes. Now, out of 1,097 people that passed by Bell, 
Only 27 gave him any money. And only seven people actually stopped and listened to him for any length of time. How much do you think he made? This is, this is the violinist who can commands thousands of dollars for each performance he gives on the greatest concert stages in the world. He made $52.17. So for 45 minutes, over a thousand people walked by blind to the treasure that was right in front of their eyes. Okay, ending right here. There is treasure available to us if we are not blind to it, if we don't turn a blind eye to it. Money is not bad. It's good, but it serves the real treasure that Jesus has gifted each of us, which is himself, and it's each other. It's his kingdom, and it is right in front of our faces. Let's not pass it by. Let's pray. Father, we praise you, uh, our Lord and our Savior. You uh, have shown us our greatest need, our sin, death that is in front of us, and you have shown us your greatest provision, your greatest gift, your Son, Jesus Christ. And you have, by your grace, ushered us in to your kingdom, uh, which we see right now, it's a people. And Father, it includes this people. And so we pray that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, uh, to believe that today, tomorrow, and the next day, and the next Sunday, and however many weeks you give us until you truly usher in that ultimate eighth day and you come back for us, where you call us home. Right now, help us to love one another and help us to love those who are without Jesus, who need him just as much as we do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.